Welcome to The Haber Show. This week's guest is Wall Street Journal reporter Ben Cohen, who covers the NBA and is the author of The Hot Hand, his first book, which comes out March 10th. We're going to talk about the bizarre and delightful world of hot hand theory and the current face of it, Stephen Curry. We'll also talk about the coronavirus, a super serious and super scary topic that he's recently reported on for the Wall Street Journal and its impact on the sports world. We'll also get into NBA Jam, love that game, Mind Tricks, and the upcoming MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I love this conversation. You're going to learn a lot about the hot hand and cold streaks in your life. So without further ado, Ben Cohen. I am holding this fresh copy. It is a beautiful emoji uh, fire emoji, which is, I think there was a, uh, a study done on, on LeBron James's, uh, Instagram account, or maybe it was just all NBA players, but the, the most popular emoji in LeBron James's world is the fire emoji. And it's a giant emoji at the middle of this, this new book that I'm holding my hand, the hot hand, the mystery and science of streaks by my buddy, Ben Cohen from the wall street journal. And for those who don't know, NBA writers are just like any other industry or any other workers around the world. They are extremely competitive and they hate when you're working on a story and you log into Twitter one day and you're excited for the big big story drop on Friday. And then Wednesday night, you see Ben Cohen at BZ Cohen drops the same story that you were writing on Wednesday. That happens so much at my job. Ben Cohen is like... The guy I've told him before, um, he is one of the best writers that we have. But in terms of story ideas and stories, I wish I would have written. He is number one on the list. And this book, The Hot Hand, is the book that I wish I had written because it is so rich, it is so so much more material than I ever imagined for the Hot Hand theory uh, and the fallacy and all that stuff. Ben Cohen, welcome to the Haber Show. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, what a generous introduction. That's very kind. And and you know, as I have told you, you have done the same thing to me many times over the last five, six years. So so right back at you. I think the number one time was about this topic was what 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 was it? Twenty seventeen finals. Yeah, we were in Cleveland. In Cleveland, on the floor, and I just put out this story about Clay Thompson and Steph Curry and this like crazy study that just came out. When that just came out, it was probably a year, right? In the the Miller San Giorgio uh, study, was that yeah, like it was a like year? twenty. It was like twenty fifteen. In fact, the story had not just come out. You told me about your story before it came out, which caused me many sleepless nights uh, <laughs> before it came out. Um, because in fact, what uh, I forget if I told you, I had literally signed the deal to write this book like a week before. And then I get to Cleveland where we spent um, many days between 2015 and 2018. And you came up to me and told me that you were writing this story. And I wanted to basically crawl into a hole and not come out uh, for the next few years. <laughs> the good thing is it was a terrible story that no one ever... It was not. Heard. It was great. It was great. You got Clay Thompson and Kyle Korver on it, right? Which is, um, I was the idiot who wrote uh, the first chapter of my book about Steph Curry, where like the most memorable hot performance probably of the last decade was his own teammate, right? So, um, and, and you know, who could, who could do better to describe the hot hand than like the wisdom of Clay Thompson? So I think we are all indebted to you for that. 
Well, uh, I think I brought it up to you because you had written like a, a Wall Street Journal column about it before. Was, yeah, that, the, was I, that the origin of... I wrote two stories about the hot hand for the journal in 2014 and 2015. And you probably know, usually by the time you are done thinking about a story and reporting a story and then writing that story, you just don't want to think about it anymore, right? Like you yeah. are sick of it. With the hot hand, for me, the opposite kind of happened. I felt like I was just kind of getting started. I wasn't exhausted by this phenomenon. I was kind of invigorated by it. I couldn't get it out of my head. And that was when this sort of seed got planted into my head that maybe there was a book here. And um, in order to write that book, I knew I would need to apply the idea far beyond academia, right? I would need to yes. find real people with real stories who could help illuminate this phenomenon. And that meant looking for them and writing about them and um, trying to explain why they mattered. And that's what took me, you know, three or four years to actually do. Yeah. So it's a, it's an amazing book and I'm not just being like Conan O'Brien on here and just saying like, Oh, I read this book and it was amazing. Uh, I've never met you before or read anything that you've written or done it. No, I've, I've, this is amazing um, book because of the fact that it it is so deeply ingrained in the human experience. And you you didn't make this a basketball book. You didn't make it a Steph Curry book. But him as a basketball player uh, is so important to the storyline. Just the idea of some kid from out of nowhere, which is kind of backwards considering he's the son of Del Curry, like the, one of the best shooters of all time. And the idea that this phenomenon happened in the NBA and also it peeled back layers just of what it means to get hot in life, uh, get cold in life, have some, some, have some bad streaks. And Steph Curry was kind of like the, uh, embodiment of that. This guy who was just so hot at Madison square garden. Were you there for that Madison square garden game? I wasn't, although I do remember where I was. I was in my apartment. It was, I think it was the night before the Sloan conference in 2013, because I remember I was training up to Boston the next day. So I wasn't there, um, but I remember watching it. I have this very strange um, recollection of certain times in Steph Curry's life, like before I was writing about him, before I was covering the NBA for the Wall Street Journal. Like I remember very vividly watching his run in 2008 um, and just sort of where I was for all of those games. And I, this was a game when he torched the Knicks in the Garden that I remembered. Um, but I think when, when we were talking about basketball earlier, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head because the beautiful thing about the hot hand is that it's this phenomenon that really, really smart people have studied for the last 35 years. And yet these genius scholars and these Nobel prize winners have always done it through the lens of basketball. And so yeah, basketball, so cool. yeah. it was so cool. It was, it was irresistible to me because basketball was this excuse for me to explore the rest of the world, right? It, it's the, one of the few topics in which it would have been intellectually dishonest to not write about basketball, right? So that's why the first chapter of this book is about this game that changed Stephen Curry's life and in some ways the fate of the Golden State Warriors and the future of the entire NBA. And I think when you peel back the layers of the onion, it, it you get Joshua Miller, who was uh, a guy I met in the 2017 finals that preceded... <laughs> this conversation that we had where I made you crawl into a hole, but I was meeting with this professor <laughs> from Italy who is from the Bay area, or at least he was at Stanford for a while. And I, I met him for coffee at, um, at the ferry building in San Francisco. And, uh, and this guy is talking to me about having 
these preconceived notions about the hot hand, how obvious it is that the hot hand exists, that like, obviously it exists because we've all felt it. And uh, I have felt it. You wrote about it. Your experience, I think it was the JV basketball game where you had no business being out there and suddenly you were hot and you were like, I want that feeling again. That was amazing. I felt superhuman. And we've all felt that. Every player has has said that they have felt the hot hand before. And then here comes all these stuffy professors and these statisticians who are like, nah, man, what you're feeling is a total illusion. I look at coin flips. It's no different than coin flips and you're wrong. And so all you dumb jocks out there who think that you're feeling this thing or in the zone, you're wrong. And for years and years and years, it was one of those things that like, I think, and we're heading into the Sloan conference here. I think it's one of the big cardinal sins of analytics is that if you go up to a player and say, no, the hot hand is fake. It's all an illusion. They will dismiss you and and call you like, uh, names like you will be you will feel bad about yourself if you tell an NBA player hey man that wasn't hot that was just you know a bunch of lucky coin flips and so the NBA world had been fighting this thing uh, where these nerds are like nah it's not real but then when you look into the data it's hard to believe that like Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson and Kyle Korver they can torch teams where they make 9 10 11 baskets in a row and you're it's so beyond the probability. And for you to look at the data and be like, yeah, this is just sheer random noise. It's not the hot hand. But then this guy, Joshua Miller, uh, and his and his partner in crime figure out that for all of these years, these Nobel Prize winners, these uh, amazing, brilliant minds, if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow, if you've read any Malcolm uh, Gladwell, if you've read any of those books, you've probably read studies that have shown that the, the hot hand is just a total illusion. It's not real. And then these two guys figured out by watching Craig Hodges' three-point shootout <laughs> tape and running these analyses with a fifth uh, fifth level, like not even minor league, like the fifth level basketball league in Europe, that there is evidence of the hot hand. And um, we just were looking at it all the wrong way. That felt like a bombshell. I wasn't able to really articulate that in this story because I didn't quite understand the math behind it, the statistical bias that they found. But can you can you explain from start to finish just what your feelings were about the hot hand until you read this paper and did your whole world flip up us upside down? So I was like everybody in that I was convinced there was such a thing as the hot hand. In fact, I don't think I even really thought about it because the idea that there was no such thing as the hot hand was just like completely beyond my scope of imagination, right? Like there was no reason for me to think that this thing that I felt so clearly when I was uh, playing basketball terribly in high school was not a thing. And then I found out that there was this classic paper about the hot hand published in the 1980s. And what made it so classic was its counterintuitive conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as the hot hand. It's this cognitive bias, this very easily digestible example of seeing patterns in randomness. And this was a paper that was written by some brilliant psychologists, Tom Gilovich and Bob Valone and the great Amos Tversky, who everyone who ever met him said he was by far the smartest person he ever met. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant. He almost certainly would have won the Nobel Prize. Um, but something amazing happened after this paper came out. It was so unbelievable that 
many people just refused to believe it. Basketball players, basketball coaches, there's this amazing anecdote about one reporter for USA Today telling Red Auerbach of the Boston Celtics that this study has just come out saying there is no such thing as the hot hands. And you can only imagine how Red Auerbach reacted, right? He, he like sneers and says like terrible things about academics and then he storms off. And so that was sort of the state of play for about 35 years. There have been hundreds of papers about the hot hands since then, and they have all tried to prove that it does exist. And some have come closer than others, but only in recent years, and this is really why I wrote the book, have convincing evidence come along that our intuition actually may have been right on this one and that really there might be such a thing as the hot hand. And the real paper that put this over the top, as you talked about, was by these two young American economists in Europe named Josh Miller and Adam Sunhuro that came out in 2018. It was finally published by Econometrica, but it was floating around the internet in preprints and had its math rubber stamped around like 2015. And what this paper did was look at coin flips. And they found this very, very, very subtle statistical bias that even some of the world's brightest statisticians had missed for like 35 years. It's like, it's, it's so trippy that unless you actually look at a table of coin flips and read their paper or rewrites of their paper exactly, can you kind of wrap your mind around what they are saying? But what they are saying basically is that we had been thinking about the hot hand wrong for 35 years. And like this was such a trippy finding that even the people who are in position to rubber stamp their math, psychologists, economists, mathematicians, statisticians, they have to think like really hard about this. And they said it was right. And it's been published and it's been peer reviewed and the math is right. But it's so counterintuitive um, that it takes us a while to wrap our minds around. So like you were in this experience that I was in, which is trying to translate this super trippy math for like a lay audience. And it's super hard. I don't know that I did it uh, all that well, but hopefully by that point in the book, it comes late. So I don't want to spoil too much, but like you will be invested in these characters and this story and what they found that um, you can kind of take the word of the experts on this one and trust that the math is right and then figure out what that means for the rest of this saga of the hot hand. And it makes you like reevaluate so much in your life. I do think that there's a zone. I do think that there's um, benefit to being on a streak or, or thinking you're hot and trying to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. But it really is um, also a story about the human experience and, um, I mean, these two researchers or these two economists were basically trying to uh, tell all these people that no Santa is real. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, this the hot hand is sort of the psychological equivalent of Santa and Bigfoot, where people are going to tell you you're crazy if you believe in it. And um, they had been conditioned to believe that as well. And yet they looked at the data and they thought about this very old problem in a new way. And um, they came around to new ways of thinking about it, these new and really revelatory ways of thinking about this very old problem. And I found that kind of irresistible. And the fact that, like, you know, Josh Miller, for one, happened to, like, be in the Bay Area at a time when Steph Curry was breaking the game was kind of too good to be true. And so, um, you know, I happened to go to a Warriors game with Josh when he was at Stanford in 2016. And this was like, it was, uh, it was right at, the, it was in April, 2016. So it was right before 
they broke uh, the 73-game record. And we saw them play the Timberwolves. It was actually a game the Warriors lost, which is kind of amazing. But we, we were sitting, like, you know, in, like, the upper row, upper deck of, of Oracle Arena in, like, one of the last rows because tickets were so outrageously expensive then. And we managed to see, like, literally the worst half of Steph Curry's season. He went the entire first half without making a shot. This was, like, maybe the greatest individual season of all time, right? And this was the single worst half. And, you know, we were sitting there, like, we would have had a better chance making a shot from sitting in the heavens than Steph seemed to then. And then he comes out in the second half, and he makes four threes in a row at one point. And it was remarkable. It was like we were seeing the hot hand for ourselves, like, he had thought about this phenomenon for so many years already. And I was in the process of writing this thing. And it was really sort of magical. As you know, like when you're in the building, when Steph gets hot, I still think it's the most thrilling thing in sports. Like it doesn't get old for me still. Like I, I, I can't imagine anything better. It's like why, it's why we go watch him warm up, right? Because it's sort of mesmerizing. And then when you see him do it in a game, like we've been in that arena where the crowd is just losing its mind, right? They don't yes. know exactly what's happening, but there is, um, there's something seductive about the hot hand. And I don't know if it's because you see Steph Curry pulling up from 30 feet or if it's because it reminds us of our own experiences with the hot hand in basketball and in life. Um, but you want to be in the arena when Steph gets hot. That's like the beauty of going to a Golden State Warriors game. It is. I remember last year in the uh, playoffs against the Houston Rockets in Houston, just yeah, yeah. beating the heart out of them. It was incredible. I, I was, uh, you weren't at Charlotte yet, I don't think, when they went there in 2015, the 2015-16 season, when they started that year on like the 24-game win streak. And they won, they won in Charlotte. And it was Steph's homecoming, of course. And I think he scored 40 or 45 points. But there was a run in the second half when he was hot. And I think his heat check three, he pulled up from like 30 feet. And the crowd just lost it. It was like there's this note that you've probably heard when Steph is hot and everyone is waiting for him to take that heat check. And the ball is in the air. And it's hard for me to describe. But if you've been inside the building when the Warriors are playing and Steph is hot and when a three goes up, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's like this this anxious breath of anticipation where anything can happen, but you kind of know what's going to happen. You know that shot is going to go in. And I still think there's nothing really better in sports right now. No, I, I, I would agree with you. And it's one of those things that I'm so glad that Josh was able to go experience that in person because it does feel like a supernatural experience. It does. It feels deeply human to go and watch someone do something that it feels like feels superhuman to watch that sometimes. And I think that's what makes this book so amazing is there's a moment where you're you're thinking about writing a book and you're like, "Oh my god, I have to I have to report on all these different threads of the story." And there's this moment of like, "Okay, when you're talking to your editor, you're talking to your a buddy of yours, you're talking to your wife, just like, how am I going to report this out? There's probably a moment here where you're thinking about writing this book that probably was super exciting, but also daunting is I have to think about what are the most ridiculous hot hands in human history. That moment was like the last three years of my life, basically. <laughs> but like yeah, not I basketball. Mean, whole... We're talking human beings, like the biggest right. hot streaks, like we're talking Shakespeare, we're talking Einstein, we're talking any any hot streak in in, in movies. Uh, you you hit on all of those notes. 
and not just hot streaks, but like the, the thing that was difficult, but ultimately rewarding. I mean, it was really the best part of writing this book for me was taking the lessons of this saga of the hot hand and what we've learned over the last 35 years and applying them far beyond basketball. So, yes, I write about um, Shakespeare and how the plague was actually sort of his secret weapon, which feels oddly timely right now, given the state of the world. Um, and I write about the making of the Princess Bride and how the hot hand kind of shaped that. But, you know, what we've also learned uh, in this search for the hot hand is the importance of better data, like not just bigger data and uh, more data, but but better data and how that can change our minds about things. And just sort of the virtue of looking at old problems in new ways. And so I went looking for stories that could illuminate uh, those ideas as well. And so that leads me to like, the search for a Van Gogh painting and a lost World War II hero. So but when I wrote the book, I knew it would have to apply uh, very widely and I could write about anything. But then it was a matter of like choosing something to write about. And when you could choose anything, it's um, it's oddly difficult. But, you know, so, yeah. it was it's like going to a, the Cheesecake Factory and trying to pick a meal. That's a brilliant example. Yes, that it, this book was the version, the literary version of going to a Cheesecake Factory. And hopefully it people will read it and come out slightly more satisfied than maybe a typical trip to the Cheesecake Factory. So what are some lessons that uh, just for readers out there who want to read this book, listeners out there who want to pick up this book, but like want a little taste of what they can get from the book that like, what are some lessons that you found in researching the hot hand, not just hot streaks, but cold streaks, better data, bad data that we can apply to our daily life? Yeah, to me, the most uh, interesting thing to think about is that the, the, the crucial distinction with the hot hand is one of control, right? So if you think about the hot hand through basketball, of course, there are certain times and certain industries when success does lead to more success, I think. When I asked um, Steph Curry about this, he says, like, he doesn't know why it happens and he doesn't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. And I think that's an interesting thing. Like once you do feel a hot hand, it's important to embrace it. I also think it's important to recognize when you are in a certain situation or environment when there is no such thing as the hot hand. So I think that 1985 paper even though uh, it's been called into question in recent years, I find it hugely admirable because um, I do think, like, directionally, it's pretty true, right? The hot end is not this uh, exaggerated NBA Jam fireball of our imagination, right? If it does exist, it's probably kind of small and not what we think about. Like, you can miss. And I think the, the, the distinction here is that when we feel like we have control of our situation, we can have a hot hand. But when we don't, when we're at the mercy of chance, it's probably best to believe that the hot hand can backfire and sort of burn you a little bit. So I think it's important to different. It's important to differentiate between those two. Like um, it's important to differentiate between skilled performance and random performance. And I think skilled is when you can take advantage, and random, whether it's investing or whether it's farming. I take a trip to the border of Minnesota and North Dakota to visit a fifth generation sugar beet farmer, you're at the mercy of chance and you probably can't take advantage. And it's as important to remember uh, that there is no such thing as the hot hand in those settings as it is to wrap your mind around the times in your life when there is a hot hand. So I remember one specific time I was with my brother, we were walking through the Bellagio and, uh, and he just, he looked at a roulette board or a roulette, table and saw that it was running hot red 
and he went four different times, Ben, over the weekend. Four different times he just bet the hot hand, so to speak, on a roulette. So he bet red. Yes. And I was losing my I was like, Chuck, this doesn't exist. Like, there's no hot hand with independent rolls of a roulette table. Like, it doesn't work like that. And he went four for four and made like two thousand. He did. Yes. Oh my god, that's um, and I was that's so crazy I was so mad. It was one of those moments where the older brother just like noogied his younger brother and just like got him in a headlock. Was like, shut up, nerd. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, but no, they're like that. That doesn't make any sense. Like that, there was like those are independent chances. There's your there is no hot hand at the roll at the roulette table. But he hit every at four times. It wasn't once, twice, three times. It was four times, and he made like twenty five hundred bucks. And he didn't let me share in any of that money because I was such a nerdy little brother. And I think it's one of those instances where uh, I think I was right that. Um, that there is no such thing as the hot hand at the roulette table. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no hot hand. If you have control over certain situations, it is not independent. And it is is you can have influence over your next opportunity for success. And I think it's, it's difficult for people to understand that there isn't this higher power ba- basketball gods or uh, you have to pray to the gambling gods that isn't helping you along. I think a lot of times people mistake chance for skill a a lot and i think it gets people in trouble so i'm wondering if you have examples of times where it it was kind of upsetting was like people thought they had the hot hand and it kind of ruined their life yes well first of all it's super odd that your brother um, bet on red after a few rolls of red because what the research that has looked at roulette tables and studied casinos shows is that most people bet on black in that situation, right? You think that um, because it's landed on red three or four times in a row, it's bound to land on black next. And that's like what's known as the gambler's fallacy, right? And so um, in basketball, if Steph Curry makes three shots in a row, everybody in the arena thinks he's making a fourth, right? In gambling, if the roulette wheel lands on red three times in a row, most people at the table are going to bet on black the next time. So your brother That's is so the weird, outlier right? in that Isn't sense. that weird? Because if people intuitively believe out- in the hot hand, like if m- the general public believes in the hot hand, then it would suggest that they, but maybe maybe that points to a, a, a more secret, deeper feeling of just like, maybe the hot hand isn't real. Well, and also people who I think I'm pretty sure that research has shown that people who believe in the hot hand also believe in the gambler's fallacy, which um, seems like it can't be true. But I think the underlying lesson there is that pure randomness is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. Um, And we struggle with it. And it's why we see patterns where they don't exist, because we're always looking for causes. And even if we have to invent them to explain randomness. And we have been doing this for longer than you or I have been alive. And um, I think that's why, in some senses, um, the hot hand and the gambler's fallacy are so compelling to us all these years later. Some of my favorite books have been in the Sloan Conference bag of goodies. And Michael Lewis's book a few years ago uh, actually talked a lot about this stuff, right? The Kahneman and Tversky book, The Undoing yes, Project. Yeah. The so, undoing project. so, so, you know, uh, Amos Tversky, as in 
Amos Tversky of Kahneman and Tversky was one of the authors of this first classic paper about right. the hot hand. And one of the great things about Amos Tversky is that um, he loved a few things. So he died in 1996 very young or else he would have shared the Nobel Prize with Kahneman. Um, but there were a few things that Amos Tversky loved. He loved Israeli politics and he loved um, the Big Bang Theory. But what he really loved was basketball. He was a total NBA freak. And so when Tom Gilovich came to him as a graduate student at Stanford in the early 1980s and talked to him about, hey, maybe we should look for uh, the hot hand, this example of seeing patterns and randomness in basketball, he didn't really have to try very hard to convince Amos Tversky. In fact, Tversky had already toyed around with the idea himself. He had thought like, how could I get shots to study over the course of a basketball game? And what he thought was, we can videotape Celtics games and then we could code all of them. And he just didn't have time to do this back then. But what they eventually did when they wrote this paper about the hot hand was um, they found this uh, this guy named Harvey Pollack, who was the official statistician for the 76ers. And it's kind of this legend in yes. analytics, even if people like, you know, most people don't know his name, but he his nickname was Superstat. Like he was this huge figure and was really ahead of his time. And in 19, uh, the early 1980s, he was one of the first people who was tracking the chronology of shots. So if you think about all of the data that's available to um, NBA nerds like us now, like we could, you know, you could take any shot and know everything about it, right? It wasn't that long ago when we didn't even know the order in which shots were taken. So the Sixers were one of the few teams that actually did that. And that was how this first study of the hot hand happened. They looked at the data from the Philadelphia 76ers. And when they when they looked to see if you were more likely to make your next shot after making a few in a row, finally, they were able to say, like, no, you weren't. And that was what the best data available then suggested. However, like the data that we have now is stuff they couldn't have imagined in their nerdiest, wonkiest dreams back then. It's changed dramatically. And so has our thinking about all of this stuff. So like Amos would have loved to read Izakowicz's uh, analysis at the Sloan conference. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, if, if, if he were alive today, I think, I think, you know, he would have wanted the best data that you could get about this stuff. Right. It wasn't, what he wanted people to do was think about the idea. Like the idea is what he cared about. And, um, you know, sometimes I think the mark of a good scientist is like the willingness to change your mind about stuff. And so um, I think the evidence now suggests that we're not crazy to believe in the hot hand. And it's just opened up all of these other new lines of research about this stuff that I think is really exciting. So you're, you're going to go to the Sloan conference. I think this will run uh, this pod run on Friday and the Sloan conference, the MIT Sloan conference is uh, dubbed Dorkapalooza by Bill Simmons, which I think is a great name. Uh, I don't think Joe Amore who founded it with Jessica Gelman. I don't think they appreciate that, but I love it. Um, it's good branding cause it is a lot of smart people, but I do think it's also uh, a good place to discuss these ideas. And your book from what I'm told is going to be in that bag just like Michael Lewis, just like several other amazing books over the past few years in the same vein, um, you're going to be heading up a panel, allegedly, the basketball analytics panel. And now I just expect you, Ben, to just plug your book the entire time. Oh, yes. The, it's going to be 45 minutes of me asking Tom Thibodeau what he thinks about the hot hand. We're just going to do this in front of thousands of people. Have you asked him about it? I have not. No, oh, I, I mean, part man, of me thinks there, there would just be like, you know, preach about the hot hand and the virtues of Ben Cohen's book. 
Come on. It could just, right. There would just be lots of grunts of ice, ice, ice. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure how revelatory that would be, but no, I think it, um, I, I, uh, I'm curious to think, I'm curious to hear what people at that conference think, because some of this research was actually presented at the Sloan conference like six or seven years ago. So um, when we're sitting in the back of like a research room, listening to these new presentations about, you know, spatial tracking and football and cricket and curling because Daryl is involved, like, you know, maybe someone in the back of the room is thinking about writing a book about it a few years later, which is one of the very cool things about that conference, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you just wrote a, a big story for the uh, Wall Street Journal about the coronavirus. And like, now I'm nervous, man. You got me scared. Like when you when you write uh, at the Wall Street Journal about like all the sports leagues around the world that are playing in empty stadiums or, or postponing their their uh, their games. I'm like, am I crazy? I, I actually lived in Miami during the Zika virus scare. And that was when my wife was like uh, three months pregnant. And we were terrified because it was in the middle of a uh, 2016 election year uh, where it was very heated uh, across the aisle and you couldn't trust the information you were getting from the government because they were protective, uh, depending on which side of the aisle they were, they were protective of saying there was Zika versus there wasn't a Zika um, outbreak in Miami. And it turns out there was, and there was active transmission of Zika, where I guess it, mosquitoes had the Zika virus and they were uh, biting people and there was active transmission of the Zika virus in South Beach where our apartment was, where we were having hopefully our first child and it was terrifying and we thought we were crazy but we moved. We straight up packed up our bags and left and we moved to Charlotte. That was three, four years ago and now I'm getting flashbacks, man, Ben. I'm getting flashbacks to... Right now, I don't know who to trust, and I'm leaning on people like you, Ben, to to help me frame this in the right, not just probability, but also just reporting what other leagues are doing and whether the uh, NBA should be doing the same, or even at the Sloan Conference if we should be doing the same. So where are you at with this coronavirus now? Are you, are you just saying we should all move to Charlotte, basically, in the next few weeks? Yes, Queen City, baby. Yeah, uh, the Charlotte Tourism Board over here. No, I, I think it's a really fascinating question. And I think that um, one of the lessons of Europe and Asia so far, where um, the coronavirus has spread more widely as of Wednesday afternoon than it has in the United States, is that like things can turn upside down very quickly. And so, you know, the thought of playing Japanese baseball in front of empty stadiums would have been unimaginable not too long ago. And yet it's become reality. I mean, Italian soccer matches have been postponed and they're now playing in front of empty stadiums. And um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a very um, obviously substantive question for the NBA and the NHL and, you know, the, the Masters and the NCAA tournament and the Boston Marathon. I mean, I think that the um, obviously the NBA is going to have to make a call on this stuff as it develops. But it's a critical time in the season, of course, like you know, if baseball were to postpone a couple of weeks of gameplay, like you could theoretically have like an 120 game season and it's not that big of a deal. Right. Um, in the NBA, like th the playoffs are a month away. Like, you know, the NCAA tournament is about to start in two weeks. Like if, if people determine that, um, the best thing to do in this case would be social distancing just to flatten the epidemic curve. Um, then suddenly you're looking at, um, potentially games being played in front of empty arenas with no fans like I, I don't know how that would change the game i don't know like what that would be for the league but i do think 
really smart people and infectious disease specialists are um, kind of warning people to expect some of the most severe disruptions to the sports calendars since like World War II. So I think the, the really tricky thing here is that um, there's a great deal of uncertainty and that makes a lot of us super anxious. Um, and, you know, news changes by the hour. I, I have found myself the last few nights just like scrolling Twitter from like 8 p.m. until midnight reading about like case fatality ratios, which is like three terrifying words that I never want to think about again. But I think we're sort of in uncharted territory here is what um, the people who actually know what they're talking about are saying. And so um, I think there is going to be some sort of reckoning for sports um, fairly soon. But, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm not a doctor. So, um, uh, you know, I just um, I, I write about sports. So this is just me calling doctors and, and enough of them taking pity on me to explain what's actually happening here. And, and when you read those case uh, fatality rate uh, numbers, I always fall back on this like upsetting realization that so much of the coronavirus that I've read about is asymptomatic. So you can have it and not really know it. And so we don't know how many cases there are actually. And secondly, here in America, we have a really bad testing uh, protocol, or at least we don't, we don't have the right supplies to test. And if it, we do have the supplies, I guess it's been faulty is what I've been reading. So I just don't know what numbers, how accurate the numbers that we are seeing, because there might be a lot of undiscovered cases that we just don't know about because they're just carriers uh, of the disease. I think I just saw um, that a dog tested positive for coronavirus. Weekly positive, but it doesn't sound like um, uh, there could be transmission there. I mean, I, you know, it's it's funny. So you saw so that much too. Like, I wasn't just being crazy and reading yes. like, okay, dark web. Well, 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 we both might have been. I don't know. I um, <laughs> I, I will say um, the funny thing in so much as anything can really be funny about this is that it kind of does go back to one of the lessons of this book, which is that like, we need better data. And like, we don't know whether to trust the data that's coming out of China. The data is constantly evolving, right? Because um, we don't know, uh, you know, how many cases there really are, we don't know what the effects of this coronavirus really are yet. And, um, you know, it's that's one of, frankly, like, one of the terrifying things about it is that, like, even really smart people who do this for a living are trying to wrap their minds around it. So, um, you know, it's constantly evolving. And um, I don't know, I don't think we're used to that sort of uncertainty in our lives. And like, one of the lessons of Kahneman and Tversky's work and like behavioral economics generally is that humans are not great at dealing with uncertainty and unpredictability. And I think that like, that's squarely where we fall right now. So has your publisher sent out face masks with the hot hand branding? Well, not yet. They haven't, but maybe in the next hour. No, that's a brilliant idea. By the way, can the I ask you? The packaging was amazing. You've watched more basketball than I have. What is the hottest you've ever seen anyone on an NBA floor? Oh, it's got to be Clay Thompson with the, uh, what's 37, th- 37 point third quarter? Well, if you're wondering what the NBA record is for most points in a quarter, you just watched it. George Gervin at 33 and a quarter. And Clay Thompson has 50 and 37 in a quarter. Clay Thompson, I'm going to repeat that, 37 in a quarter. Yeah, um, so is it the 37 point third quarter or the 60 points in three I quarters? I, I, I think it's 37 too. 37 uh, because he was so cold going into that third quarter. 
And also, if you go back and watch that game, like he takes shots that he just has no right taking. And even though you know they're going in because you've seen them before, when the ball is in the air, you're like, this shot can't possibly go in. And then it does. It's like it's really it really holds up those like five minute YouTube highlights of Clay catching fire. It's, um, you know, I watch it from time to time and I'm never really disappointed by it. And the idea is so alluring is that like he's being touched by the hand of God in those moments. And we all kind of in moments in our lives, we just feel like we're, we're on another level. Um, whether it's like you're driving in traffic on a road trip and you just feel like you're, <laughs> you're like, man, this left lane is just on fire. Like I am killing it right now. And then you find out later that like, that like, that like Chrysler caravan that you saw like an hour ago just zooms by you in the right lane. And you're like, what? No, I thought I was killing it. I thought I was just like on another level. And like so many times in my life, I'm feeling like I've, I've touched, I've been touched by the hand of God in so many mundane things in my life. And, uh, I'm, I feel, Oh, one thing I want to ask you about NBA jam. So much of our lives is now, uh, digitized and persuasive technology and the idea of like, uh, I need to check in because I need to feel, uh, I need to, I need to continue the streak. NBA jam sold. I couldn't believe the stat in the book sold a billion dollars worth of coins of quarters in one year. And mostly I think, and you wrote about it because of the hot hand or just like this idea of like tweaking the game to reflect if you make three shots in a row, you, you, you get hot. He's on fire. Yeah. So I remember playing the hot, I remember playing NBA jam as I'm sure you do, because I think for people our age, it was like unavoidable. And what I did not realize until writing this book was that NBA jam was like one of the most lucrative, successful arcade games ever made. Like it wasn't just us. Yeah. Like it was like, it was hugely popular and it was like an enormous, um, smash hit. And, you know, part of that is because it was a basketball game and it was fun to play. And the announcer said funny things like boom shakalaka. Right. But I think part of it is also because it introduced people to this idea of the hot hand that you could make two or three shots in a row and you'd be heating up and then you would be on fire. And when you were on fire, like you almost couldn't miss. There's this very strange quirk in the game where sometimes you actually did miss because the designer of the game, this this guy named Mark Trammell, like wanted, I think it's a 95% chance that you make the next shot. And it would drive people crazy when they didn't make the next shot when they were on fire. But um, I think he sort of single-handedly brainwashed an entire generation of people into believing that there was such a thing as the hot hand. And one of the cool things about that is that, you know, there's someone else who's around our age, which is Stephen Curry. And he played the game because his father was in the game, when some versions of the game, right? Like Dell, you could play as Dell, which means that Steph could technically sort of play as himself when it showed Curry on the screen. And so like, you know, in, in that way, you know, not many other ways, but in that way, like Steph Curry is just like one of us. So cool. So cool. How NBA Jam made Ben Cohen an author. This is great. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. What's up, everybody? This is Anna Scanner from Boston Celtics. I want you to check out my podcast, Anna Scanner Show. It's Chris Boisberg, NBC Sports Boston co-host of the Ennis Cantor Show on the NBC Sports Boston Podcast Network. Each week, we talk to Ennis Cantor about his life on and off the court. He's a fascinating individual. We dive into his celebrity Rolodex. One week, we might call up Taco Fall. All right, Taco's calling. Taco! (laughs) 
everybody. Welcome to the Ennis Cantor Show. I'm honored. Another we might check in with Donnie Wahlberg, who is a Celtic super fan. I'm not a Fairweather fan or a bandwagon fan. I ride through the tough times as well as the good. And, and I was just as proud to be a Celtics fan then as I am now. So make sure to check out the Ennis Cantor Show as we continue to discuss his crazy life and talk with all the celebrity friends in his contacts. Now, back to the conversation. This is a great book. The Mystery and Science of Streaks, The Hot Hand. It comes out on March 10th, um, and you should go read the book. Uh, if not only just because it's a beautiful cover. It really is. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, we uh, we went through many covers, and from the very beginning, I was sort of insistent on, like, can we just try to get a fire emoji in there? And they sort of did a brilliant job with it. So, um so I, people know I, this. I, you just put fire emojis throughout your articles at the Wall Street Journal. That's oh that's yeah, your, like, I, signature I, I, thing. Yeah, I, I know you stopped reading the book on like page 150 because like 151 through 300 is just it's just a lot of fire emojis and like I, there's there's no words on there. So um, so people are in for a treat. Uh, before you go, the hottest hot streak of all time in your opinion is like basketball. Doesn't have to be basketball, but in your research, the one bit that of streak that you were just like it can't be topped i mean einstein's 1905 was pretty good <laughs> uh, imagine you know, bayless and Stephen a just debating this when the book comes out is like what is what is the hottest hot streak? oh it's got to be it's got to be shakespeare post epidemic right post play you know i respect newton but <laughs> so so einstein takes the cake einstein's pretty good Maybe Steph Curry second. That that game in the Garden was pretty was pretty great. And uh, for us anyway, I think it's probably changed our lives just as much as uh, Einstein's discovery of special relativity in 1905. So um, it's somewhere it's a toss up between yeah. Steph Curry dropping 54 in the Garden and Einstein like rewriting science as we know it. Ben, we could have done like another hour on what's happening at the Garden these days. Oh man. You must be just well. I have to say, the most amazing thing about uh, that Warriors game, there were lots of amazing things. Like you know, the, uh, Steph Curry's bus got pulled over on the way to the Garden. He made eleven of his thirteen threes. He scored more points than he scored in a single game to this day. But the most amazing thing about what happened the night that Steph Curry got hot and changed the NBA forever is that the New York Knicks actually won that night. They beat the Warriors. Um, <laughs> and so that was something I was not expecting. Um, and, you know, especially in a game when Steph catches fire and especially with the Knicks, it, it sort of shows how long ago that was in the NBA, even though it really wasn't all that long ago. And somehow the Knicks keep on winning and people will go to Knicks games despite every ridiculous fall on their face, face palm, PR statement that gets issued somehow we will not not Spike Lee though not Spike Lee not Spike I I was thinking about that with Charles Oakley thing I was like the one guy that you the one guy you can't mess with is Charles Oakley and then I thought wait no you you can't mess with Spike Lee they would never touch Spike Lee and then here we are so um, Ben Cohen Wall Street Journal the hot hand also presenting at the Sloan Conference I'm excited to see you, man. We'll do a we'll do a fist pump or an elbow bash when I see you. Um, and good luck on the book opening, book tour, everything. Uh, so jealous. I'm, I, I honestly like everything I've said about this book is 100% true. Is you wrote the hell out of it, and uh, I, I wish all the best on this on this next few months on this thing. 
Thank you, Tom. This was very generous and kind, so I really appreciate it. All right, and that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. I want to thank Ben Cohen for joining me. Again, that book is The Hot Hand. comes out March 10th. It's an amazing book. You should go read it. Not just because I'm friends with Ben. If you haven't, go subscribe, rate and review the Haber Show pod. That'd be a great help. And also, if you haven't listened to the previous pods with Mark Cuban and Frank Vogel, uh, go check those out now and go tell your friends about the Haber Show. Until next time.